0: Welcome back to We, the Museum, a podcast for museum workers who want to form a more perfect institution. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman. My very first podcast back in 2017 was called Museums in Strange Places. The strange place in that case was Iceland. But I've always been interested in museums and strange places, generally speaking, you know, exhibitions and displays outside the museum walls in spaces where you wouldn't normally expect to learn about art, history, science, and culture. So in this episode, I wanted to explore the possibilities of pop-ups, temporary or ephemeral museum-y experiences. And I thought a great way to do that would be to focus in on the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street program, which has been innovating in this category for nearly 30 years, as they bring modular exhibitions to small towns in America for six weeks at a time. My guest today is Robert Filoni. Besides being very active in the museums and humanities spaces in Maryland generally, Robert is the Program Officer for Partnerships at Maryland Humanities. In that position, Rob helps implement the Museum on Main Street program in my state. Coming up, Robert and I get into the Museum on Main Street model and how state humanities organizations use it to generate even more pop-up exhibitions and programs. We'll also take a look at how other institutions and community groups in this region are using the power of the pop-up to reach more people. I should caveat this by saying that Museum on Main Street has been one of my podcasting clients for the last few years. If you're interested, the podcast that I produce for them is called Smithsonian's Stories from Main Street. But they aren't sponsoring this episode or anything. I'm just genuinely a big fan of the program. But you know who is sponsoring this episode? Landslide Creative. Landslide Creative provides custom website design and development for museums and other nonprofits who want to increase their engagement, connect with their visitors, donors, and volunteers. And isn't that all of us, right? With a custom website designed for the unique needs of your museum, you can stop fighting with your website and focus on growing your impact. Head over to landslidecreative.com to learn more. All right. Let's get into the episode. So can you tell me about, generally about Museum on Main Street and how it works from the state humanities perspective?
1: Yeah. So essentially it's put together by SITES, which is the Smithsonian Institution's Traveling Exhibition Service. And the idea behind this is there's a core exhibition that the Smithsonian puts together around a particular topic or theme. It could be water, occupation, sports, whatever it might be. And it's viewed through a national lens. So the Smithsonian creates a modular exhibit that travels around the country, and then in each particular state, the Humanities Council is responsible for helping develop companion exhibitions and programming that is tied to the particular community itself. So that's really what my role as a program officer is, helping the various local communities which are in rural areas develop their own pop-up exhibitions that are typically up for six weeks and that are tied to the overall theme but really focus specifically on the values, the characteristics, the qualities, the history of their local community.
0: Can you describe some of the spaces that these exhibitions have been in in Maryland and some of the creativity you've seen? We're just going to give like rapid fire all the different ways that Museum on Main Street has kind of showed up in Maryland.
1: So essentially what's really nice about it is it's designed by sites in the Smithsonian to be a modular unit. It comes to us in a variety of different ways in crates. And we usually have about six different sections and segments. And what's nice about it is that each individual segment can be exhibited on its own. So there doesn't need to be a clear progression from start to finish necessarily. There is an introductory section, but it's designed so people can kind of choose their own adventure and go from place to place. And because of the modular aspect, it allows each particular site to determine how to best lay it out based on their physical plant and how things are set up. So we've had it exhibited in historic sites, museums, barns, libraries, historic houses, just a a little bit of, of everything. And depending on the location, that same exact exhibit that comes to us from the Smithsonian would look very differently. So sometimes it might be just a straightforward linear setup where people can go from A to B to C. In other situations, we've had it set up where it's in multiple rooms. We've had it actually In multiple situations where the host partner that we're working collaboratively with is too small, again, because these are mostly in rural communities and they're not very large institutions per se. So the host partner works with another collaborator and it's actually hosted offsite at that. So most recently we had it at the Oxford Museum here, which is a very small museum on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And it was hosted at a former historic church that's been used at the com- as a community for public education and programming.
0: Yeah, I visited the one in the church in Oxford, the cutest little rural church um, in this beautiful old town. And I remember there was like local art and some other really cool local stuff as well. And it was just, yeah, it was a beautiful space to take in an exhibition.
1: Yeah, it's been wonderful. I mean, we've had a wide variety of different organizations, as I said. We had it in um, Sumner Hall. The Way We Worked exhibit was there at the Grand Army of the Republic Hall, which focused on African-American veterans from the Civil War. We've had it at the Calvert Library System. We've worked with colleges and universities quite a bit as well. So Salisbury University and Frostburg also have had them it really runs the gamut of the types of sites that have been able to participate in the program. So it's not just your typical museum per se, but lots of humanities organizations and community groups too.
0: And I remember you telling me there was one that was installed on a a ferry.
1: That was one of the pop-up exhibitions, exactly. So what's really interesting about it, as I said, is the pop-up exhibits, what I love about them is it really allows for a lot more creativity and flexibility Than your traditional museum exhibition. And because of that, we see a wide diversity of ways that the exhibits manifest. And with the Oxford Museum, they had an exhibit tied to waterways. And the idea behind this was they wanted to talk about resilience and climate change and what was happening in terms of sea level rise in the community. So they worked with a local artist, and he did an art installation in the church around the Smithsonian's exhibit where you could look at examples of fine art tied to what the community might look like in the future based on sea level rise. So they were landscapes with houses and then poured clear resin showing what would happen with sea level rise and how high the water would come up. But in addition to that, there was a number of different installations set up around town. So on the water by the ferry, which crosses the river, there was information about waterways in the Museum on Main Street program and a lot of specific information about the relationship of the transition from land to water in Talbot County. And in addition to that, that ferry landing where that exhibit was put on place, they created an exhibition about the ferry itself. It's one of the the oldest, I think might be the oldest continuous working ferry in the country going from Oxford to Bellevue. And What they did is they put together interpretive panels on the ferry itself. That way, people who are traveling across the ferry would be able to learn about waterways. They'd be able to learn about the Museum on Main Street exhibit and the local history while they were actually traveling on the boat. And what's nice is that exhibit is is still there. So it's designed as a pop-up exhibition, a temporary space. But because it was so popular, the ferry has continued to use it and it's still on display today.
0: I love an interpretive panel in a practical spot as you're like just moving through a space. I was picking up someone, um a visitor from England uh, at Dulles Airport. And I was trying to remember the history of the airport's design and everything as we're walking. And then, boom, we're walking out, and there's this great exhibit panel just on the wall on your exit. And I was like, oh, see here this museum. It was so it was such a wonderful moment to be able to, like, grab that history and share it with that person. and, yeah, have a little, add a little uh, museum-y experience to something very rote, like picking someone up from the airport. And I can imagine the ferry is kind of the same way.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think that's why these pop-up exhibitions are so popular, because they're providing a combination of educational, social, experiential, and overall enjoyable qualities in spaces that are atypical. So people come across them, or they're really done in a way that's much more immersive and participatory than you would typically get in a lot of these other small historic houses or rural museums as well. So it allows for this flexibility and creativity that you don't necessarily have when you're designing an exhibition that's going to be long-term.
0: And this, the the dynamic of, now some of, I know the Museum on Main Street, people are coming to see the exhibition, but then some of the elements that go with it and other pop-ups beyond the program, you're putting them in a space where people aren't intentionally going to seek out an experience like this and then they encounter it. And so that's a whole different design, a whole different type of experience when you encounter information, when you encounter this engagement rather than going and seeking it out.
1: Yeah, I think those are two other qualities that are really important about pop-up exhibitions. They provide opportunities to engage audiences in unusual places. So for example, when we did the way we worked focusing on occupation in Sumner Hall, we had 92 or 93 different exhibits and programs spread throughout Kent County. Wow! 12 different museums were involved. We had the school system, all of these different places where people could go to see and learn about occupation in the area and in the region, but in places that you wouldn't expect. So even the, the local tractor company got involved where you could go and purchase new equipment, but they actually created an exhibit of all historic tractors on their property. And it really provides A unique opportunity, I think, for museums and historic sites through pop-up exhibits to engage people beyond their walls. So, as as part of that, they're really innovative and using new ideas to engage those audiences.
0: Yeah, I think on that note, this is kind of a similar question or or topic. But I was thinking about how Maryland is kind of an interesting example of this because obviously, Museum on Main Street goes to all the states, I think, and Guam. um, So they go to places where there aren't the National Smithsonian museums, but You know, people who might not live in Maryland might think, Maryland's a small state. Why can't people just go to the Smithsonian? Like, why can't they go to Baltimore, Annapolis, uh, the, the mall? Talk to me about what the kind of what it means to that that distance between even, you know, Western Maryland, Eastern Maryland and the Smithsonian. What a difference it makes to take things out to people in their town.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that are important about that. One, I think people geographically on the map, it might look like we're in close proximity to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. But in reality, when you try to drive from the mountains of Western Maryland, or if you're in Worcester County or Somerset County by the Atlantic Ocean, it takes a good deal of time to go from place to place. So that, that's one issue is it's not as close as it actually looks. If you're living in the capital region and you're not too far outside of D.C. in the suburbs there in like Montgomery County or Prince George's County, that's one thing. So the proximity is an issue, I think, just in terms of getting people engaged. But as I said, the other thing that's really crucial about this is it's focusing on the local community, the stories of that particular region and those people. So though we have the national exhibit and it helps raise the visibility of the organization because they see the Smithsonian name, they hear about Maryland humanities coming. So a lot of people get interested in that. They're creating exhibits and programs that are really unique to that particular place. And they can fine tune things based on the stories that they're telling. So a lot of the work that's taking place is creating these networks and providing the opportunity for outreach. One of the things I think that's really most crucial about Museum on Main Street is we view it as capacity building as well. So the exhibit is there on site typically for six weeks. However, we do a tremendous amount of work before and after providing support to these communities to help build up their capacity. So after the exhibit is down, they have a new toolkit to pull from and they're able to go into their community and continue developing exhibitions, working on programs and really building out those dynamics in the partnerships that they developed over time. So the capacity building, for me in particular, is one of the things that's most exciting about the Museum on Main Street program, is that we're going out and using our resources, our skills, and also pulling in outside consultants and experts as part of this process too. So we hire scholars, we work with the community, and as part of our capacity building program, they can pick and choose different things. We have like a whole menu, an a la carte menu, of things that they're interested in. So if they're really interested in social media, we can have them work with someone who's focusing on that. If they're interested in grant writing and management, we can bring in a consultant or an expert who focuses on that. And other times we'll bring the entire team together, like we did recently with Dr. Julie Rose, and she talked about difficult histories from the book that she's recently written and gave a kind of talk and presentation about that. Or I started off as a consultant myself on the Museum on Street program And I would do a lot of work about community engagement, listening, shared authority, and teaching the organizations how to work collaboratively with the community. So our capacity building is a major part of the initiative outside of just having the exhibit in the programs on site for that six weeks.
0: Yeah, I think you described it um, when we were talking previously as like kind of a catalyst for so much more in the community. That's right. We'll be right back to my conversation with Robert Filoni, but first, it's time for a Digital Minute with Amanda Dyer, Creative Director at Landslide Creative. Hi, I'm Amanda Dyer, Creative Director at Landslide Creative, and I've got a quick tip you can use to improve your museum website. Think of your website visitors as skimmers, swimmers, and divers. Skimmers want to get in, get the information they need, and get out as quickly as possible. Swimmers might be willing to spend a bit more time and are looking for content that piques their interest and divers wanna explore and take it all in. Consider each of these types of visitors in the website experience, just like you would in your museum experience. For skimmers, make sure the most important information can be found quickly and easily. For swimmers, think about how you can use interactive content and media to encourage engagement. And for divers, offer more in-depth resources and regularly add fresh content. You can learn more about how to design for skimmers, swimmers, and divers on our website at landsidecreativecom skim. And back to the episode. I think there's this this question of like, well, anywhere in the country, well, of course, people are going to go to the city for their culture. And I love cities. I love city culture. But you can experience culture and create culture and have as rich of a cultural experience in your own town and community. And if you choose to go to the city and visit that culture, that's fine. But really bringing the museum out to the towns to say, this is as valid a place for culture and creativity and history creates that catalyst to even further develop that that as a space for those to continue in the long run,
1: yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's such diversity and variety in the different types of cultural institutions and organizations that are throughout Maryland. And each one of these communities has a really unique story to tell, multiple stories to tell from a variety of different perspectives and viewpoints. So, That's what we're hoping to do. Again, is is like taking the resources and expertise and technical assistance that we have and then providing and building upon that to improve the work that can happen in these rural areas as well. And again, creating a network so they understand what else is happening because so much of our work I think happens in isolation often, especially with smaller institutions. Many of the organizations we're working with have very small staff. Sometimes they're entirely volunteer run. And they just don't know what's happening in the field. So we provide the support structure and convene the conversation so they understand what else is happening and they can work collaboratively as a group. So that's what's one thing that's nice about the cohort. When we do our Museum on Main Street program, we'll typically have five or six different communities that we're working with. And we have them come together for conversations and discussions and training. They brainstorm ideas about what they can do. And we even do that at the, the national level too. So I recently went to the planning for Spark, which is the next exhibit that the Smithsonian just created, sites organized different program officers from around the country to come together. So there are people like myself, people from Wyoming, South Dakota, um, South Carolina, and we're all having conversations about like what we could do, what we're planning on doing, and sharing our creativity and ideas with one another so we could improve the programs at our state level too.
0: And I think what's interesting, especially about Spark, is that it's not a one-way street. The exhibition itself is created from these amazing stories of innovation and creativity that have come out of small towns. And then the exhibition with these stories is going to go back into small towns who are then going to add to it and talk to it. And I know Museum on Main Street collects a lot of audio stories as well and content that comes back and enriches their understanding and allows them to create better exhibitions and to have a Smithsonian that's more representative of the full country. And so I think for any museum considering kind of uh, going outside the walls, this is absolutely beneficial in a two-way direction.
1: Yeah, I am incredibly excited about Spark coming to Maryland. And Yeah, Part of it is it's so much more about process and transformative innovations, as you said, in the communities rather than content per se. So it's really celebrating different ideas that communities have to have an impact on people's lives. So what we're going to be doing is a little bit different than in the past where we're going to be doing a lot more capacity building and upfront work with our communities in Maryland to identify groups and different organizations and locations that are doing this type of work already and providing resources in advance. So then the companion exhibits and programs that they create will reflect what has been going on rather than the other way around where usually a site is awarded the space and then create something after the fact when it comes into the area short or shortly before. Typically, We've got planning years, and then we have the tour year or years as part of that process, and we're kind of flipping things. And as you said, in terms of innovation and invention, one of the things that we really want to focus on is language access, because we identify the fact that there's more and more languages being spoken throughout Maryland, and too often we aren't providing opportunities for people to engage in the exhibits and programs in that way. So part of the idea with Spark is we're hoping to add languages as it travels across the country it's automatically going to have a tremendous amount of Spanish built into it in the interpretive labels, as well as some of the technology. And then some of the games and interactives have Spanish components as well. But the hope is that we can add uh, Hindi, Mandarin, there's talk of adding Lakota. I've spoken with some people here about additional languages that we could add in Maryland. So it really makes it much more inclusive and accessible to the population in that way.
0: Yeah, I think you said, like, Algonquin is one of the native languages spoken in Maryland, right? Exactly. We have a number of
1: indigenous communities that speak Algonquin and a number of state-recognized tribes who are part of the process. So it would be wonderful if we could add Algonquin into that.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, I thought we'd talk about some examples outside of Museum on Main Street. I know the two that we talked about before in Maryland are at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Oh, and then in D.C. is the Anacostia Community Museum. Do you have any thoughts on what the Baltimore Museum of Industry did with their outdoor exhibition?
1: For me, I think of it, I'm I'm an artist also, and I think about the difference between doing an oil painting versus doing a sketch. And when we as museum curators and exhibit designers are putting together a long-term exhibition, we tend to be much more constrained and restricted about what we do because we know it's going to be there for seven or 10 or 15 years, and we want it to last. So a lot of time, a lot of money and resources go into it. And because of that, you don't have the same level of flexibility and creativity that you have if you're doing a pop-up exhibition. It's like a sketch. It's something that you can do really quickly. You can experiment. So I think it really allows the opportunity for institutions to be outside-the-box thinkers in many respects. And in addition to that, I think COVID caused organizations to engage in pop-up exhibits in a different way. They were forced to do this. So with the Baltimore Museum of Industry what they did that was really wonderful was they were working on an exhibit focusing on steel, Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore and the steel workers there and as part of this process you know the pandemic hit and everyone was drastically impacted this is you know an understatement but as museums we closed down our interior spaces everyone shut down and you couldn't communicate or connect with the visitors in the same way what the Baltimore Museum of Industry did was they used a fence along the key highway and they put the exhibit, all the interpretive panels, on the fence itself. So people were able to go and see and participate and understand the stories of what they had done. It was called Women in Steel and it went up in the fall of 2020, so when everything was still closed to the public. And they also worked collaboratively with uh, Aaron Hyken, who deals with a lot of local public radio here, WYPR. And he created uh, podcasts as well, talking with some of these women who are working the steel mills and also the surrounding Sparrow Point area as part of that process. So,
0: A little name correction here. The radio producer that the Baltimore Museum of Industry worked with is Aaron Hankin. Such a good podcast. Everyone should go listen to Sparrow's Point, an American steel story, right? I think. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Everyone should listen to that podcast.
1: I think that was a, a great way of really looking at it and being forced outside of the box. Also, I, th- I think... A lot of this work, as I said, is happening all the time. The Smithsonian Folklife Festival does this every year on the National Mall. You mentioned the National Mall before. This is a common area where people from all over the country and internationally gather on a regular basis. And because of the nature of the space, you can't have anything permanent. The National Park Service, and I do love them, won't allow <laughs> anything to happen in a very substantial way. So everything is very ephemeral, and it's designed to be ephemeral in the space itself. But the the Smithsonian has been putting together this festival for decades now, and every year they do something that's unique, that's different, that's celebrating living cultures, and it's only there for two weeks in July around the 4th. In the past, they've done things like having people from Peru come and Quechua speakers designing um, th- through vines, the actual bridges that they use to traverse the, the wide chasms in the Andes, or had the Dogon people designing mud huts as part of the process. And again, these are by design made to be temporary, but they engage people because they're participatory, they're creative, they're inventive. And it's really outside of the box thinking in terms of what we think about when people imagine a museum with a lot of display furniture, having, you know, objects behind plexiglass cases, or a lot of text on the wall.
0: One of the things that I was involved in during the pandemic was uh, at the Anacostia Community Museum. And like the Baltimore Museum of Industry, they had an exhibition that there was planned, Men of Change, about influential African-American men. And they decided not just to put it outside their walls, they went into a different neighborhood, the Deanwood Neighborhood, uh, another uh, African-American neighborhood, and spread the exhibit out throughout the neighborhood at important sites so that people could walk through their neighborhood and see these pictures of not just influential African-American men in the country, but local people who had made a big difference in the Deanwood neighborhood, um, you know, their fathers, their mentors, the people that they knew, their grandparents. And and I got, I was, had a small part in helping to edit the audio tour Uh, that went along with it. You could go and stop at each stop and listen to stories from local people as well. And that was really cool because the museum not just got outside their walls, but even went outside their immediate uh, space around the museum.
1: And again, it really activates the entire community. So it's not just about the site, not just about the museum or the cultural institution anymore. It's about the people. And you're feeling... Uh, you're empowering them and making them get a sense of the fact that they're in control and there's ownership, this co-curation and authority by being part of that process. So one of the things that we did as part of the Museum on Main Street that just finished up Crossroads here in Maryland was I collaborated with Washington College faculty and students, and we actually trained a lot of these small organizations on how to design their own pop-up exhibits. So we create a series of workshops over a sequential period of time where they learned specifically how to actually identify the different target audiences, develop the narratives. But then we also taught them the techniques of what you needed to do uh, with hands-on workshops. So we had sequential workshops over time where they came in early on developing their story and then coming back after they had worked on it for a bit to actually digitize the images and objects from their collections, 3D pieces. We also taught them how to use Canva. And then we had Eight different museum groups or community groups create exhibits in their windows with the interpretive panels about different stories that were unique to them. And then part of the major Chestertown Tea Party that they have each year where tens of thousands of people come into Chestertown, all of these community members had these interpretive panels in their windows as part of the pop-up display.
0: I think this episode should be called uh, Pop-Up Power, uh, Power of the Pop-Up. It's There's so much potential. I I hope everyone who's listening is inspired because I'm like, we need to do more pop-ups. I'm all riled up.
1: Well, the other thing, I think there's just a level of play here. As I said, it's enjoyable and it allows you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do if you were creating a permanent exhibition. So people tend to be much more interactive, participatory. They're more equitable in terms of including voices or community groups that they wouldn't work with before. It attracts new audiences, so people who wouldn't think about going to your site by having a pop-up exhibit like this off-site, you're pulling in people and letting them know what you're doing in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. So it's just a great way of really being experiential, flexible, and creative.
0: Yeah, I think there's a great example from the Spark Exhibition Museum on Main Street. One of the stories in there is about Bethel, Vermont, and I think this, this captures both like just silliness and play and innovation. They had like a, a whiteboard out or, you know, flipboard where people could write ideas for the town they were having, you know, an event. And someone wrote, "BU," And they were just like, yeah, that's Bethel University. Okay. Hey town, would you like to do Bethel University? And they offered it up to the town as one of the options of things they could all try. And they're all like, yeah, why not? And they created this like one month community university where everyone came and taught a class, kind of like that movie Acceptance, um, where they- <laughs> It's all
1: about lifelong learning. Exactly. Everyone in the community thought about what they could contribute and how they were able to give back. And it just created a, such a sense of goodwill and citizenship within that community, I think is great. That story in Bethel is really inspiring.
0: I think that's the power like of that play and possibility and ephemerality that pop-up exhibitions can can bring to spaces. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing some of the cool stories from Museum on Main Street.
1: Happy to do so.
0: Thanks for listening to We the Museum. You've been listening to my conversation with Robert Filoni, Program Officer for Partnerships at Maryland Humanities. To learn more about the Smithsonian's Museum on Main Street program, visit museumonmainstreet.org. Again, their podcast, produced and hosted by me, is called Smithsonian's Stories from Main Street. Smithsonian's Stories from Main Street. To learn more about Maryland humanities, visit their website at mdhumanities.org. That podcast from the Baltimore Museum of Industry we mentioned is Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story. If you want to hear more about the Baltimore Museum of Industry's great work, check out episode 5 of this podcast, which is about how they collaborated with their public school district to honor food service workers. I'll leave links to all these resources and more, plus a transcript on the show notes page for this episode at wethemuseum.com. By the way, if you think wethemuseum.com is a cool website, it was designed by our show sponsor, Landslide Creative making a podcast takes a lot of time and energy, and I wouldn't be able to set aside the space to make this show without Landslide Creative's financial support. So if your museum is considering a new website, definitely make Landslide Creative your first stop. Finally, I've been your host, Hannah Hethman. Till next time.